slowly but surely I realized that if I needed to be able to manage people effectively, I needed to understand the working environment and the social and political environment in which these people were living. Now, if you look at it like this, if you go into business to serve the needs and wants of people, and you do that well, then the money will always come. Thanks for clicking play on the number one podcast show for business owners in South Africa. My name is Manus Bredrek, and this is season number three of Making SMEs Matter. This season, we'll be chatting to some of South Africa's top entrepreneurs, guys and girls who have built some of South Africa's biggest brands and companies. And if you're building a company of your own, or you have dreams of becoming a successful entrepreneur one day, then this podcast show is going to inspire you and bring you valuable lessons that you can use in your own business. I want to give a special thank you to Investec Business Cash Solutions, the team that has helped us bring you this podcast. Make sure you join our mailing list at sme.africa forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, before I introduce our guest, I do want to ask you if you haven't rated or reviewed this show yet, please to do so. It really helps us to get more listeners to the show. And then also to stay up to date with all the episodes, please join our mailing list on www.sme.africa. My guest this week is the founder of the Sorbet Beauty Salon Group, Ian Fur. Incredible guy, a funny guy, and he's just a great storyteller. And I think you're going to love this episode. And if you're out there, you're a business owner and you feel a little bit demotivated, maybe feeling that things are not going for you in this economy, then I especially want you to listen to this episode. Ian is sharing his journey and how he struggled for five years before it actually worked out. He put everything on the line. He got to a stage where he felt stupid and reckless and then it all worked out. And I think sometimes we just got to carry on. That and a lot more coming up in this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, it's Sean Jackson from Investec Business Cash Solutions, proud sponsor of Making SMEs Matter. Our aim is to partner with you in order to understand your business's unique cash flows to grow and maximize the return on your cash. I hope you enjoy this episode filled with valuable insights from our featured entrepreneur. A couple of weeks ago, we had an event at SME.Africa and one of our speakers was the founder of the brand that you would all know, the Sorbet Beauty Salon Group. Um, his name is Ian Fur. He had an incredible talk. Our small business owners got so much value from it and we thought what a great opportunity to bring Ian on this podcast to share some of that uh, with you. So with me in the studio right now, Ian Fur. Ian, thank you Hi. so much for joining us. Hi, thanks very much for having me, Manus. Our people really enjoyed you. Um, not only are you a great entrepreneur, you're also a very funny guy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so Ian, serial entrepreneur. Yes. Um, we all know about the Sorbet Group, but there was right. a long journey before that. Let's spend the next five minutes just talking about that. Where were you born? I was born in Funnabale Park. Uh, in 1953, a long time ago, and, and then moved to Johannesburg when I was about four years old. And then my father was in, involved in business. So I think, you know, that was one of the advantages that I had was that I grew up in the business family, if you want to call it that. So he was one of the founding directors of Russell Furnishes and the guy who started Joshua Daw in South Africa. And so we learned a lot from him. You know, I've got three other brothers. We were all very involved in learning about business. And uh, so when I went to university... Um, uh, we we, we got to play that joke, Ian. 
everyone's got an uncle in the furniture business, <laughs> but you've got a... I've got a father in the furniture business, <laughs> Joshua <Yes>. Doe. <laughs> that must have been incredible. Your dad is the founder of Joshua Doe. Yeah. Um, so he did that on behalf of Russell's. He was working for Russell's at the time, and then he went overseas and he discovered the, the concept in America. And, and he managed to get the license to open it in South Africa. And, you know, all of those advertising things and the, the jingle and that it was actually from America. It wasn't locally developed. They used it, you know. And so, yeah, it was very successful in the beginning. And then it morphed into a different concept over the years. And, and then it became a part of a, of, a, of a different company later on. When you were small, did you go with your dad to the yeah, store? Yeah, in fact, I, I was there when they opened the very first Joshua door. I was like serving customers out in the parking lot there because it was one of those concepts. I don't know if you know what Joshua door was like when it started. Mm -mm. It was a warehouse concept where you had all these showrooms throughout the this huge warehouse and then you would choose what you wanted. So you would get like a, you know, a dining room laid out or a bedroom suite you choose what you wanted, and then you go to the back and you pick it up and you take it home. Oh wow! That was that was the concept. Okay. And that lasted for a while, but eventually they changed that into normal retail stores. Yeah. Okay. And what was your first taste in in business? Well, I uh, well in nineteen seventy four, I, I went to become a singer. I dropped out of you know, out of varsity very successfully, and uh, <laughs> I, 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 what I did went, you go and study? I, I was studying BCom, but I was yeah, I really wasn't didn't have my heart in it at all. So I was you know playing guitar a lot at the time, and I used to be a singer. So I decided you know I should go and sing rather than study. So that's what I did for a while. And then because I loved the music world, I I approached one of the record companies, Gallo Record Company, back in the old days, and they gave me a job working in one of their record bars. So, so that was my first real job. Um, and and then I'd work in the record bar during the day and then go and sing in the hotel at, at night. That was my life for quite a while. Okay. For about 18 months I did that. And then uh, my brother, you know, as I said in the talk, my brother came back from America and he told me he had discovered um, this business called Kmart in the States, huge big departmental stores, and that we should open one of those. And uh, it, it was quite interesting because at that stage I knew nothing and I was 22 years old, I really knew very, very little. That I'd worked in a record bar and that was about it and I had no idea. So what's, what's a record it. bar? A record bar was like a little, <laughs> it was like within um, a sort of departmental store, you'd have a little record bar there you know, just, and it was old LP records okay. essentially. So I used to work in a place called Greatermans. I don't know if you're even old enough to remember Greatermans. I don't, I don't. It was one of the department stores that, that we had in South Africa. It was John Orr's and all of those things. You know, I do know about it. I think Raymond Ackerman's dad, wasn't he? That's right. Um, yeah, that he, he was, was involved with that. Yes. That's right. So I worked at Greatermans. But Gallows owned the record bar in Greatermans. So, so they would take the space and open the record bar. And that's, that's what I used to do. You know, it was me and one other person. Um, I knew I hadn't really climbed the ladder much when I was assistant to a young girl who knew even less than me. Uh, <laughs> and she was about 19 and I, I was 22. And, and with like the blind leading the blind. But it was fun in the end. And we 
worked from there. Within about a year of that, I was promoted to be the sales manager of, of this Gala group of stores. They had about 35 record bars around the country in all these various department stores. And the, so I became national sales and marketing manager for what it was worth for about uh, eight months. And then my brother decided we need to go and change uh, the retail space. Okay. <laughs> and, and so we did. I was very naive at the time and I really didn't know much about it, but it seemed like an adventure and I wasn't one to, to turn down a, a kind of a dare at the time. So we started. Well, was that the first taste of entrepreneurship and starting your own yes, business with yeah, your brother? And, and it was a hell of a taste because it was much bigger than I could possibly manage at the time you know we went crazy we built this big place and we advertised ridiculous prices and we were completely flooded with customers from all over the place who had never seen prices like that and i had no idea how to manage the process or i had no idea what to do with the cash so i was hiding cash under blankets and, <laughs> and, and I, st as I, I still to this day don't know if we actually counted all the cash in the end some of it i'm sure got left behind so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was really a, a massive um sort of baptism of fire you know and to be in that situation then most importantly i think where the big lessons came was that having been in you know, in a, a Jewish school, whites-only school, very white environment, and I met for the first time a whole lot of black people that I, you know, I'd never really come into contact with before. So all of our staff were black, customers were black, and we were we were marketing in the in the black media. So all of it was completely new and different to me, and so it was quite a quite an overwhelming start to my entrepreneurial life, but. Slowly but surely, I realized that if I needed to be able to manage people effectively, I needed to understand the working environment and the social and political environment in which these people were living. So there was a little story there, if, if, if I have enough time to yeah, share Yeah, of course. With you. So when was this now? Uh, around the 70s? This was 1976. We opened just, just after the, the Soweto uprisings. Wow. And where was the store opened? In, in, um, in JP Street in Johannesburg, JP, okay. in the city. What was the story? So there's a story about a guy called Ralph. So Ralph, his name was Ralph Mamela, and, and he, he was the guy who was like our sort of top supervisor in the store. I was the manager, and he was our top supervisor. He looked after the shelf packing and stuff. And he was a really amazing guy and a very hard worker, so I decided to sort of promote him. I didn't even know what that meant exactly, but I, I knew that he had to grow. <laughs> so I, I was trying to grow. He was, of course, older than me, and, and so um, they didn't have a lot of respect for me because they knew how little I knew. And so we, we, we had to try and develop relationships. Anyway, so I, I sort of took this guy on and I said, right, we're going to grow you and one day you'll be a manager of the store. And of course, at that time, there were no black managers of any stores mm -hmm. in white areas. Anyway, so I was working with him and it was all going well. And then we had these consumer boycotts, which were, which were quite uh, terrifying at the time because they would, they would uh, come and boycott white-owned stores. Right, so we were a white-owned yeah. store, even though we were the first company in South Africa to have black shareholders and black directors. We just got caught up and we got sort of painted with the same brush as everyone else, and uh, we we had some real hassles. But the story was that one of my staff comes running into me one day and says, "Listen, we have one of our staff out there handing out pamphlets 
to promote the consumer boycott of white-owned stores, of which we were one. And so my own staff member was doing that. And to make matters a hell of a lot worse, it was good old Ralph. <laughs> so Ralph was out there promoting the demise of our business, essentially. Yeah. And, and you can imagine how upset I was. I mean, I, was, I went crazy. Called him in, you know, and I crept on him from a dizzy height and told him, how could you possibly do this after all we've done for you? Which is a very common white sort of retort when things don't go well. Yeah. After all I've done for you, why? I mean, how can you do this to me kind of thing? Anyway, so he said to me, you know, something that really left a, a, big, a big impression on me. He said, you know what, Ian, I, I appreciate what you've done. I enjoy working here at this Kmart business, but, but you need to know that when I leave the business, okay, virtually every single day I get harassed by the police, especially now with all the trouble that's been going on with the uprisings and stuff. I get harassed by the police, my parents get arrested for some ridiculous apartheid law, and so we can't live like this, we can't live like this. So, so I've decided that for me, freedom must come first and work second. So that was a big eye-opener for me. And I thought, well, okay, so I thought I knew what was going on, but clearly not. And so instead of firing him, which was my first intention, I said, okay, well, then you have to teach me. I, I want to know what's going on in this country, because I was completely oblivious yeah, yeah. to what was happening in the townships and stuff. He said, okay, if that's what you want, I'll, I'll teach you. And then... So he started taking me into the townships. He started showing me around, and we went to Shabin's and we went to his house, and and then all of a sudden I realized, hang on a second, this is this is not right. So we're living in a country which is completely racist in in its attitude and and has manipulated the population into a superior group and an inferior group, and and I was part of this thing and and we were trying to run a business in this environment so it was crazy so these guys would be outside, they would be doing all kinds of things and then I expected them to forget about all that come to work do your job go home, yeah. and just switch off, and then I realized that this is not possible so then became a thing of mine to understand the environment in which people are living has a major impact on the environment in which they work. Mm -hmm. And so I changed my whole style of management completely and I started to say, right, okay, I'm going to get to know the individuals in this business. I, and I sat down one-on-one -on -one with every employee, tried to find out what their home life was, what were the issues in their lives, how were they doing financially, what was the impact of all the laws and stuff. And so with that, you know, the, the attitude of the people changed significantly. Whereas before I was just a young white boy, yeah. you know, with power to, to tell them what to do. Now I was a person who actually was genuinely interested in their issues and their concerns. And all of a sudden, we started to find some amazing productivity going on there. And, and that eventually led me to leave and become a race relations consultant for public companies which I did in 1991. What happened to the, uh, to the supermarket group then? It was Kmart, yeah, well, right? There was a few issues there. Kmart, we should never have used their name. I, I used their name, which wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I didn't know much about trademarks and things at the time. <laughs> that was, so that was a bit naive, but what did I know? And then I, to make matters worse, I even used their logo. So, because I thought that's a hell of a waste of time. They got such a cool logo. Why would I want to? Why would I want to go and do another one? You know, that was crazy. So anyway, so 
So they took us to court in, in about 1988, and we defended the trial because we thought that after 12 years, we had a right to use the name. We had been using that name. They hadn't stopped us before. So in the meantime, have you opened up more stores? Yeah, yeah, just no, running no, the one? no. There were, there, there were about five or six stores at okay. that stage. We had them in Pretoria, Germiston, and Benoni, and all over the place. <laughs> and, and so... <laughs> And so um, we, we just fought the case and lost hopelessly. And our, our lawyers went to match for these Americans. Yeah. But there were some interesting things at the time that went on there. So I, I was called into, into John Foster Square about three times because we were opening stores. At that stage, not only were we opening these big department stores, we were also opening up record bars. So what happened was they called us in because they didn't want us to have black managers in white areas. That, that was against the, the law. So they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't understand how you want me to put a white person in because all my customers are black and we're trying to sell them black music. Now, what's a white person going to know about black music? And I tried to give them the sort of practical example, but they weren't interested. They just said, no, you're not allowed to do this. So what we did was we went to the newspaper at the time Uh, I think it, at that stage it was still called the World Newspaper before it came the Sowetan. And I, and we said to them, and we found um, this guy, I can't remember his name, but he was the son of um, Sisulu. His name was Max Sisulu. He was a journalist and he was working at the World at the time. And we told him our story. We said, listen, you know, this is ridiculous. We're trying to run a business here that won't allow us to have black managers. So we said... So we came up with a little sort of a sort of an angle, and we said that we want to put out a story that that uh, invites white invalids, people who were sick or and even maybe dying, but because the 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 definition of the manager according to the law was he who controls the key. Okay. <laughs> so we said we want to get. I a, can see a, where this going. We can yeah. see get an old white guy in a wheelchair to come and sit in the back of the store and hold the key. <laughs> So, so we and he did. I mean, Max Tsuli went crazy. It was a full-page article on this thing, and we made a total mockery of, of the uh -huh. whole thing. Total mockery. Uh -huh. And and believe it or not, they they left us alone. We never heard about it again. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all these stories, opening five, six stores, and then yes, and then um, and then there was a liquidation. And 1986, Kmart went into liquidation because of the consumer boycotts. Uh, and and you know, in, in that December of 1985, we did 15% of our budget for that for December. Sure. Wow. That, that's how effective wow. the boycotts were, wow. which put us out of business essentially. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I was born in 85, um, and mm. I think a lot of people in my generation we don't really know about apartheid and yeah. and how it played out and everything. But I'm super obsessed with it. Like been yes. reading so many books. I think yes. apartheid museum. Yes. Not many people go there, but yes. I think it's one of the most fascinating places in Joburg. I'm super obsessed with it. But I don't think we, if you 20, 30 years old today, you realized how, you what apartheid was really about back then. No, I mean it's just unbelievable, actually. And and I became obsessed with it as well. And I studied it, and because I became a race relations consultant, I needed to know everything. So I, I learned the laws. I learned, you know, like for example, the law, the Bantu Education Act, which was passed in the same year that I was born, 1953, by a guy called Hendrik Vorwurt. Mm. At the time, he was the Minister of Education. And he stood up in Parliament and he said, you know, the black people of this country 
will never rise above the level of laborer, and therefore there is no reason to teach them maths and science. So just with one so stroke of, of, yeah. of a pen, one stroke of a law in, into you know, at Parliament took away effectively the education of the entire black population for the next 40-odd years mm -hmm. and, and just kept them where you know, the uh, National Party thought that sh they should be, which is just at labourer level. They didn't want to compete with the blacks. They didn't want them to compete for the, for the industry, for economy. So yeah, they just kept them out of, the, out of the loop. And so you know, that was just one of the many horrendous things yeah. that they did to manipulate the societies in which mm. we lived. I mean, there was one, one ridiculous law, very briefly, where you couldn't go, you couldn't go, I mean, a black person couldn't go onto a white beach, right? Now, I'm still trying to work out how they defined what a white beach is, because the sand looked pretty much the same. The, the sun was still shining on both the beaches. The sky was pretty blue for both of them. And, but there was a white beach. Mm, mm. And so, but, but there was a couple of bylaws that said, but, but it's okay for a maid, a black maid, to go onto the white beach if she's looking after a white child. Right? This is all in the law. But her husband may not visit her on the beach. That's crazy. That's crazy. You weren't allowed to go in. A black person wasn't even allowed to go into the waters of this white beach um, to, to, to save somebody if they're drowning. They were not allowed at all. Finished. Yeah. Oh. You know, and it's all in the law. Yeah. It was it's, in the law. Yeah, we can't comprehend it today, right? No, no, it's just completely crazy. Anyway. So 20 years after building came out, all of this happened, yes. and then you felt passionate about this course, so you started yeah. consulting to listed companies. Yeah. So what we did, I mean, I tried to get in there, but it was very difficult. No, I had no real credibility, particularly I was I no academic background, no nothing. So they didn't have a lot of faith in my ability to deal with race issues in the workplace. Anyway, I, I decided to create industrial theater, and that was a major step for me in, in the right direction. So we created a play about that, that highlighted issues of racism in the workplace. And um, it, it was so powerful and, and so effective that we, we put it on in, in a conference. We invited companies to come and see this thing, and they loved it, and, that, and, and the business took off. It was called LabourLink, and we had people asking us to come and do the shows in their offices and to show their staff. And as a result, I managed to get in as a consultant you know, to kind of back this whole thing up. And so for the next seven years, I consulted to a lot of really big companies, very fascinating, stimulating, challenging, but highly rewarding work yeah. when, you, when you feel that you're actually making a little difference, no matter how small it is yeah. in, in the world. But I was largely sensitizing white people to what really happened mm -hmm. in this country. And, and so so this is in the 90s now, so yeah. people now need to make this transformation yes. and you're helping them with Correct. that. That was the whole idea. Okay. And so it, it was a very, it was challenging. I mean, some of the stuff I was doing for Lonro Mining up there in the Northwest, you know, where the AWB was housed there. And I had guys, AWB guys in my workshops that, that did not want to hear what I had to say at all. And one guy threatened to give me a good clap if I carried on talking mm. about racism. Mm. 
And so it was, it was fun. Were, were you ever... No, <laughs> no. He, he threatened a big snot club for me. He said, if you carry on talking like this, you're going to get a yeah. big fat club for me. Yeah. And he was a big guy. And I thought, this is, this is not a good time to be fighting. Wow. <laughs> I wanna, I've never been a fighter. I want to get to Sorbet, uh, but yeah. I want to ask you, if you if you look back where you're sitting here today and you yeah. look back, how do you feel we as a, as a country have progressed in terms of race and the way we work together? Because I think it's, it's so difficult now um, when you're sitting at the top of a, of a big company, you need to deal with different religions, races, sexuality, cultures. Um, the, the, the cultures. There are so many different things. Do you think we're doing well with this background or do you think we... No, we're not doing well. We're screwing it up. I don't think so. So let me tell you an interesting thing and I should actually send it to you. In 1993, when I was busy with all of this, I wrote an article... In fact, I write a number of articles for a, an HR magazine called People Dynamics, which doesn't exist anymore. And so that article was about racism in the workplace. It was called Managing Polarization. And that article, I pulled it out the other day. And I tell you, if I put it in the press today, Still it would be as relevant as it was in 1993. It's, it's remarkable. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. The issues that, we, that I was talking about then are still very much the issues that are being addressed now. I do not believe that corporate South Africa has addressed this thing effectively. Some people, some companies know the issues, but they don't really know how to deal with them. And some people, you know, just are completely oblivious and they just carry on regardless. So, so the thing about it is that what people don't realize is that the issue that have to do with race and culture and all of that stuff in companies have an enormous effect on productivity and performance. So we wonder why South Africa is not up there you know, on the productivity stakes when you rank them against other countries. And it's quite clear that we haven't been able to address this, this melting pot of, of diversity in this country. We, we don't sufficiently take into account the social, political and economic environment that exists outside the business and the impact that that has inside the business. So that's what we did at Sorbet. We, we, did, we, we worked very, very hard to get people to start to accept and respect and, and tolerate others that, that were different to them and, and to get them to build like a, a community of people that, that could then form the foundation of serving, you know, serving our, our customers to the very best of their ability. But if you didn't get that right, the first person to suffer is always the customer. Mm, mm. You know, it's, it's like, you know, there, there was so much fighting going on in the corporates between management and labor and unions and that. You can imagine how the customers got served through all of that. Mm. You know, the customer would say, service, please. And the management would say, well, can't you see we're fighting here with our staff? Please don't interrupt us. And, and so that's the kind of thing that, that I don't believe has been adequately addressed. So everything that I do in terms of, of Hatch and my coaching and consulting is always based around how to lead 
in the context of the South African environment. It's what you said earlier, like that guy that you wanted to promote to, to manager. It's, yes. it's coming back in the same sense, right? You, you yes. had to understand his, yes, his environment. Yeah, and, and you I think that's where we're time. failing? Yeah, and, and we fail there. We don't always understand properly. We don't give people an opportunity to share that stuff with us. Mm. We don't go and ask the questions. Mm. Do you, is there time in the business world to do that? You know, somebody asked me how much time did I spend at, at Sorbet on, on people and culture. And I kind of tried to work it out, and I think I got a fairly accurate assessment that it was a minimum of one-third of my time was spent on this. So every single person that came into the company had to attend my induction training. And in that induction training, we dealt with all of these issues. It wasn't about about how to do beauty treatments. It was all about this stuff. It's about how to deal with race, how to deal with culture, how to deal with religion, for example. When, when you are now thrust into an environment where you've got a whole lot of people that are different to you, and then most companies just say, you know, get on with it. You, know, yeah. you come to work, forget all your troubles, put them, leave them at home, come here and work, and then you know, go and sort them out when you leave. Well, that's just a ridiculous notion and and it's not re and that's not feasible and and really those companies who believe that are being quite irresponsible sure. really and let's start with sorbet i want to yeah. explore that journey a little bit your yes. ice cream shop the ice cream shop how, how stupid it? name sorbet i don't know <laughs> why i got excited about that name because it caused us a lot of grief in the beginning you know people say to me now what a great name sorbet you know i say ish it wasn't so great in the beginning. You know, what, what's interesting about names is, is that businesses build names. Names don't build businesses. Mm -hmm. So when you get a great business and it starts to fly and everyone's interested, all of a sudden the name sounds terrific. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm sure when somebody started out with Google, you know, you go and say, what do you think of this name Google? And they say, have you lost your mind? You know, yeah. what, what are you doing? <laughs> but then Google becomes one of the biggest businesses in the world and the name just sounds terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's just how it works. So, Sorbet, if you're listening to this, it's not an ice cream shop. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the country's leading beauty salon group. Um, where did the name come up, come about? Well, it was I, I went to to an agency, and I, I told them what we were trying to do. We, you know, the, the brief was that we wanted to do something completely different to what was out there, and and I didn't want to. Was that your vision? Yeah, the whole thing was differentiation from day one. That was the one thing I did know, um, and I said we've got to come up with a name that's got nothing to do with beauty. Mm. Uh, why? Why? And why? Why beauty salon? We we got to start there. Yeah, look, it wasn't my dream. <laughs> <laughs> It, it certainly, I, you know, if you had asked me what, what was my next business going to be, I think beauty would have been at the bottom of the list. So, you know, life, life is interesting in how you find your path from strange little situations or events or happenings that take you completely down a different road. And it was, it was quite simple. I was uh, having a massage and, and, and the beauty therapist doing my massage because she knew I had left the, my previous, I had sold the um, Kmart to, so it was called Supermart at the end. Um, I, I told it to Edcon and I was looking for something to do. And she said, Why don't you, um, you know, go into the beauty industry? And I, first I thought she was crazy, but I know nothing about that. And then she said one thing to me that sparked some interest. She said, You know, there's no beauty salon chains in South Africa under one brand. Mm. 
There's hundreds and hundreds of independent operators, and everyone, you know, if you ask 20 people which is their favorite salon, you could easily get 20 different answers. So it was highly fragmented, and that, that appealed to me. I thought, okay. But then I said to her, but now, why are there no chains? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, she said, well, you'll have to go and find out, because she, she couldn't give me that answer. And then, and I didn't know myself until after we started the business, but I couldn't, I couldn't be bothered to go and ask a lot of people because then what happens is when you come into a new business or a new industry, which is what I always enjoyed, you come in with fresh eyes, you're not contaminated by the conventional wisdom of what is right and what works and what yeah. doesn't work. So you come in and you do what your gut tells you. So I tried not to ask too many people why. There were no chains because they would have told me something and I, and I would have maybe been put off by that. So I thought, no, if, if I'm going to do this, we're going to blunder in and we're going to try and see if we can make this thing work. So I just decided I'm going to do whatever was out there. I was going to do something different. So the different layout, different, different um, design of the stores, different um, retail treatment ratios, everything different. That was my only plan in the beginning because I couldn't I've, I've always believed that sameness is a disease in business you don't want to go out there and copy other people mm. some people say yeah we'll copy them but try and do it better I, I'm not too sure about that I, I want to do something completely different and if people tell me it can't be done that really spurs me on I mean, that's an exciting challenge and then you got to try and do something that's never been done before uh, how did you do it? Did you buy one or two salons, or did you yeah. set up one from scratch? And no, no, this? I bought five. Five? Wow. Yeah, we bought yeah. five independent salons over about a six-month period to learn the business. I, I was fortunate in that I had some money from the sale of, of, of the supermarket business. Just help me with that, because I thought that went into liquidation. No, no, but it came out of liquid. We bought it out of liquidation, okay. and we carried on running oh, it. Okay. okay. And then it changed to supermarket when we lost the court case. So Supermart was the business that was ultimately sold to Edcon. Okay. At that time, do you think, did you think of yourself as an entrepreneur, business owner, I've now made it and I want to take on the next thing? Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, you know, I've, I've always, I think the exciting thing for me as an entrepreneur and, 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 and where I'm perhaps a little different is that I, I'm not a great operator of businesses. I've never found that to be a strength of mine, I, I, but I do enjoy starting them. Mm. And, and trying to build something new and, and, and different. So, so once a company gets big, like Supermart did, um, and, and the same as, as Sorbet, when it gets big, then it's not really my scene anymore. So I'm, that's why now you know, I go and start again and try and find something else. And that's how the hatch thing came okay. about. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. So you've got five sh shops now, and now you're trying to figure it out. Yeah, so now we go and we get a store designer. Lots of women around you. Yeah, lots of women. That, Happy that, place. You know, that, you know, <laughs> challenging, but interesting and, and, and educational. Learned a lot about women and all their stuff that they do. Um, is, <laughs> is there anything to learn? About bikini waxing. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty. 
but the, yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that that I learned there. I mean, from scratch about all of this stuff. But but the point was that that it was it was new and it was different and it was exciting. And all I was trying to do was to find some way to differentiate ourselves in in the market. So the name, the look and feel of the store, the branding, all the, all the everything, and of course the staffing, because. The one thing that I could apply from my past was was the whole culture thing, and uh, and and I always believed that culture at the end would, would was going to be our, our real differentiator. So we could change the look of the stores, and we could do all these things, but everyone else had the opportunity to do the same thing, and they could copy us. But I always worked out that they could never copy a culture; mm. that that can't be done. Well, not easily, anyway. And so that's we we worked hard, and that's you know. So I was doing those induction training programs from day one, right at the very very beginning. Every person that joined us went through my whole culture, philosophy, of service and and community and servant leadership, because those are the things I had been practicing and teaching other people for many years. How, how was that growth in the beginning? Once you've set it up, was it five stores, ten stores, fifty stores? Oh, well, it was five stores, which all struggled very badly uh, for a long time. <laughs> so it was there was no there was no rags to riches glory. Uh, I was waiting for this now. This overnight success. No, 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 overnight, no. Five years. Five years. Five years. And if I didn't have the money that I got from the previous sale, I wouldn't have lasted five years. We, I would have been out of business. Because it just took a long, long time, and then that, that then tests your 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 metal quite a lot. You know, you you now sitting, you're looking over the brink, and and you got your you got everything. I mean, literally everything that I had, I put into that business, and I'm starting to think that I've been uh, stupid, I've been reckless, I'm playing with my family's lives, and uh, so I had a lot of doubt you know, along the way with this thing, having to put money into the business every single month for four and a half years. So, what made you go through those times? Thinking back, what's the okay? So. So my mission in the beginning was to build the brand. I, I've always believed that if you build the brand, the money will follow. And so that, that mission didn't work well for the first four and a half years. But I, I wasn't prepared to throw in the towel. Mm. So I just stuck with it. And I said, let's keep building the brand, keep building the brand. And, and eventually it came through. And one person said they wanted to franchise this business. By that stage in 2009, we had about... 13 stores, I think, at that point. Um, so it took us, you know, the first five years to open about 12 or 13 stores. And those were all your, your, your own stores? Yeah, yeah. We, we had to open 22 stores eventually, you know, um, to get to our first franchisee by the time it came along. And, and so that, that, was, that was a long, long, hard struggle. My kids joined me, my, my two twin and I've got a boy and girl twin. They joined me in 2009, and they became an important part of the process. Um, so my daughter was was in, was in marketing. My son was in operations, and and then we finally got the franchisee. And then once we got that one franchisee, then it started to turn. So all the stores that we had opened and we had paid for ourselves, we sold yeah. back to franchisees. And then, of course, we were on a good footing after that. And then it grew rapidly. So let me just get this right. In, in 20, 
2012, we hit 50 stores. So the first 50 stores took seven years. The next 100 stores took, um, hang on a sec, the next 50 stores took about one and a half years. And then from then we were opening 30 stores a year. So we got to 200, and by the time I left it was 215 stores. And what would you say, what's the reason? It just took a lot of time to, to build that initial part. Yeah, you had to build the credibility of the brand. Mm. You know, and, and, and the good news was that all of our franchisees, virtually every single one of them, had been a guest of ours mm. before they became a franchisee and that was very encouraging because people loved the brand and they loved and they had they were passionate about it sure so that was important yeah so Ian if there's a small business owner sitting there out there building this business and it feels like there's no traction what's the one piece of advice that you would give to them okay so I I would say the following You, you need to be an entrepreneur I think you need three fundamental characteristics okay firstly you need to have intuition. So, so intuition is essentially the feeling that you know something is right, even though you don't have the evidence to prove it. So to, like a gut feel, this, this is what I'm going to do. So I kept thinking, you know, this brand is going to take off at some point in time, but I had no proof that it was going to. So you need that intuition. You also need courage, because there are going to be many times when you feel that you want to throw in the towel and, and you've got to really, you know, fuss bait through that stuff. Sometimes you, you don't have the opportunity or the, or the wherewithal to continue. But if you can and you believe in what you're doing, if you really believe it and you have that sense, then you've got to try and stick with it. Mm-hmm. And then also knowing that it's a long haul. No, no easy walk to freedom here. Um, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to have the determination to see it through over a period of time. And I suppose finally maybe a fourth one is you can't be afraid to fail. Sure. And there are many, many ups and many downs in that Many journey. ups and yeah, no, just up and down. If I just take this week for myself, like one day I felt like a billionaire and the next day I felt <laughs> unemployed and homeless. <laughs> and then oh, you just pick yourself it's, up it's, again. It's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Yeah. Ups and downs. Ups and downs. And fast forward, um, what, another 10 years, and then you decided 15 years, that's yeah. it. Yeah, 15 years. We sold the business to a listed company called Long, Long for, for Life. Life. And um, I, had, I had a one-year contract that I had to work through, which I did. And at the end of that, then I, we left. The whole family left. Okay. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. And looking back at it, driving through the streets of... Santon and seeing Sorbet stickers on all the malls, how does it make you feel? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, there's always a tinge of, you know, you, you get a little warm, fuzzy feeling in the heart knowing that you started this thing and it's a big business now. But that, that really wasn't the big thing for me. I've always believed that you don't go into business to make money. I know that sounds a bit weird, but but if... You, you know, if you look at it like this, if you go into business to serve the needs and wants of people and you do that well, mm. then the money will always come. So, so I, I've, I felt that we, you know, the, the real success factor for me was how many lives we touched. So we touched you know, over 3,000 lives of people that worked within the Sorbet environment and, and had been empowered and were earning sustainable livings. We touched 180-odd franchisees 
because some of them had more than one, and and who were able to to own their own businesses and and to also, you know, create some sort of sustainability. And we had more than half a million loyalty members on on our program. All of those people, we mm. touched their lives. As, so that, to me, is the real reward. And also the fact that we changed the face of the industry completely. When I started, the beauty therapists were 95% white. Uh, and, and when I asked people, they said, well, because white customers don't like black therapists working on their skin. That was when I started. And I made a very conscious decision at that time that we were going to change that. And so we've, we, turned, we actually changed the face of the industry. Now it's about 95% black mm. in, 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 in the stores. And probably that's the one thing that I'm most proud mm, of, mm. Um, quite honestly. Mm. And, and just the fact that we touched a lot of people's lives over the years yeah. and made a difference. That's really cool. I think there's so many things that I still want to chat to you about, like your own mindset, Sorbet Man, yes. uh, expanding into the UK, and that didn't work out for you. Yes. yes. But uh, I think I want to explore a bit of um, stuff around small businesses and small business owners. You, you yes. must have seen many people with lots of dreams in their eyes wanting to buy a Sorbet, and then maybe things didn't work out. So first yes. question is, what would you tell to people who want to buy into, into a franchise? Is there any practical things that you can... Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of, of lessons to be learned there. The first thing is you should never confuse a franchise with being an entrepreneur. Those, there's no entrepreneurial factor in the franchise. Explain that. Because it's a completely set, you know, it's a fixed set of rules that you have to live by and abide by, and you've got to do it exactly according to the rules, which means that you have no real freedom to use your own creativity. You can use little bits and pieces, but pretty much you, you need to be a person that's comfortable working within a very strict set of rules. So people used to think they'd come in as entrepreneurs, oh, and I've got my own business, but then they get frustrated because they can't do some of the things they feel they'd like to do, because we because then it starts to undermine the brand. When the bigger you get, the more strict it needs to be. Yeah. So, so that was a bit of a harsh reality for some people, and we used to warn them about that. Um, the other thing is that when you do go into a franchise, and maybe you don't really feel the need to use too much creativity, your, your chances of success are, are hugely improved. So about 80% of our franchise businesses succeed, and about 80% of non-franchise business, new businesses fail. So, so that was, and you got a much, much better chance of being able to, mm. to, to earn a good living. Mm. And so I think those are the two main things. But you shouldn't go into a franchise thinking, now that I own my business, I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because that's not my understanding yeah. of an entrepreneur. I, I fully agree with that. And, and what about someone that's sitting out there, they've started something, it's usually successful, and now they say, I want to go the franchise route. What's your practical advice to people yeah, who want to start a franchise? Yeah, because people do get a bit swept away with, with the idea, you know, they've got a good business and they think, right now to franchise. You, you, you need to be very cautious with that. Um, you firstly need to understand that in order for a franchise model to work, there needs to be enough margin for both the franchisor and the franchisee. Because the franchisee's success is going to be your success. So if you think that you can just happily take money and people are willing to pay an upfront amount and they're going to open stores and it's all very exciting and you take their money, 
but you don't ensure that they are successful. You just leave them to be and you know, good luck, here's the stuff, you know, you know best of luck to you. Um, you can't do that. So we were absolutely obsessed that our franchisees were profitable and not all of them were. And so when they weren't, we would then go in. We would have a thing called a TLC group. So we would put together a group of people at head office to go and provide some tender loving care for that particular store and, and make sure that we do whatever we can to help them to become mm -hmm. successful. So that's what, I mean, that's how you need to look at franchising. You can't just see it as an opportunity to take people's money. Yeah. You've got to be very selective about who you, you take. You've got to be very, very selective about the locations that you take. So what tends to happen, you know, your business starts to do well. Like, say, it's a beauty salon business. You, you start to do well. You think you can franchise. Somebody comes and says, listen, I've got this place there around the corner that I want to open the store. You say, sure. You know, it's going to cost you 150,000 rand. Uh, but, you know, good luck there. It's a bit quiet there, but yeah. it'll, it'll be okay. And, and then you don't care what happens. And you, mm. then you just go to the next one and you mm. try and sell as many as you mm. can. And then all of a sudden the whole business collapses because you've just been greedy. Yeah. You know, and, and so that, that's not cool. And there's a lot of businesses like that, there's right? Lots, yeah. lots of them. We had, a, uh, we had Brian Altridge from Rockamama yeah. um, on the podcast as well. Yes. And yeah, it was very interesting. Like, I mean, that's a great brand. Yes. Yeah, lovely and brand. also the focus on operation manuals, yes. training. Yeah. It's, it's exactly the same stuff that you said. Pl plenty, plenty, plenty training and, and also culture training, you know, getting people to understand what the purpose of business is and what they're trying to do get them to understand their reason for being. A lot of you know, lots of businesses open, they don't even understand what their reason for being is. So you go and open a business, and I ask you, what's your reason for being? Well, they say, no, to make money. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, well, good luck, because that's not going to work. Your reason for being is you have to find the needs and wants of the customer and make sure that you serve those well. And if you do that, well, then the money will come. But if you go into business, because this is now a chance for me to make money, then you do a lot of things that are not customer-centric. Sure. You're cutting costs, you're doing this, you're doing that, yeah. you're squeezing here and squeezing there, and that's not a sustainable model. Um, Ian, on mindset, like so many issues around the world, so many issues in South Africa, um, political, currency, um, ESCOM, yeah, how yeah. do you think about challenges in your own mind and how do you approach it? How do you stay positive? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be positive in this environment. You know, you're just hearing so much gloom and doom. But the thing is, you know, one has to decide, listen, you know, I'm, I'm going to succumb to the general will of the negativity out there or I'm going to see what I can do to make a difference in my own life and, and not stop doing the things that I feel I want to do. Mm. And so you've got, to, you've got to go out there and make a difference. Otherwise, we're going to all get swamped with negativity and nothing will ever happen. Mm. So that's why entrepreneurial businesses are so important at this time, is that we need people to have courage to go out there and do these things and, and try and make a go of it and try and employ more people because the country has never needed it more in its history right now. Because we certainly can't rely on the government organizations to, to take us out of our mm. problems. So this is a huge, hugely important area at the moment. 
before we get to the future and what you're currently busy with yeah. um, like I said there's so many things I want to chat to you I've learned so many things from you uh, reading your books listening to yeah. you talk uh, you've got two incredible books out and I think there's a lot of lessons in that do you quickly just want to share that yeah, so the first one called Get That Feeling was, was my sort of entrepreneurial journey. That, why did, that was the why did you change the cover? Uh, because it, it went to a different publisher, okay. and, and they, they didn't feel that it needed to have a picture of me. I think that was probably stopping the sales. Right? <laughs> 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 we were trying to attract sales, so we were trying to stop there. And uh, it, it was just, it became, um, what, what happened was I originally published it through Penguin, and then when I wrote the second book, um, I asked them if they would take on the first book as well. I went to Pan Macmillan, okay. and they published it. And so they took on the first book, um, and, and they, they cut the price slightly. So it became a kind of a budget book okay. um, in, in its second printing. And then they launched uh, The Soul of Sorbet, which is really just all about the culture of the sorbet business. Amazing. If you're listening to this, I would encourage you to do check it out. It's two incredible books and I think so, so many lessons. And I think the stuff that we almost take for granted as entrepreneurs, especially when it gets to culture and just doing things differently. So, yeah, I'm learning a lot from it and I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, thank you. Ian, what are you busy with and what's the next couple of years looking so, like? So, I retired for an afternoon nap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a Friday. <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> And started again on Monday. So, so I've always, my real passion is is in in teaching and coaching and stuff like that, and trying to help you know small businesses to 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 develop their plans and their strategies and cultures and all that kind of stuff. So, I thought that's a natural place for me to go back to. Um, and and I've had you know I used all of these ideas at Solvay and it worked particularly well. And I thought, okay, if we do that. Um, and we help other businesses with those philosophies, it should work. And then also, what, what I discovered though, there's a new element of it, which I didn't do a lot of in, the, in my previous businesses, was the individual personal development of, of the business leader. And that was something that I discovered, in fact, I'm quite annoyed with myself that I didn't pick that up a lot sooner, is that the, the, the potential or the or the sort of possibility of, of becoming a good business leader would, would be increased tremendously when you did personal life coaching with that individual. So understanding their own lives, understanding their barriers, what are the problems that are blocking them from their progress, whether it be fears, whether it be ego, whether it be blind spots, and so we take them through a journey of understanding themselves, understanding where their paradigms came from, how they affected their behavior, etc., etc. And I have found now with, with my current clients that that's made a huge difference in people then being able to sort of transform from that into a servant leader. Because, because servant leadership is not, it's the exact opposite of the normal structured power-based type of leadership that says that I'm your boss, therefore I can tell you what to do. So servant leadership says you need to earn the moral authority to lead. You need to be able to show people that you, um, that you can be trusted, you can be respected, you, you care enough about the individuals and you're committed to their growth and development. And th those type of things then earn you the right to lead. And then when you do that, then it becomes so much easier 
to focus on your purpose, which always has to do with the customer. So it's always about service. So you get a service philosophy, your reason for being. It's always about the customer. It's never about yourself or your money. And then once you have a reason for being, you can then align everything in your business towards that. That, you know, for us, our, our, our reason for being at Sorbet was touching people's lives. That, that's why we existed. And we wanted to touch them in a positive way and we wanted to help them feel good about themselves. So every single element of the business had to be aligned with that. And so what I've realized is that if you're looking at your own issues and, and you're going on a program or a, a journey of self-development, it becomes much more powerful when you're then starting to try and earn that moral authority to lead as, as a servant leader. So it's integrated. Whereas before, some people had life coaching, some people had business coaching. I'm, I'm now integrating both of those things into one. And that's like the main sort of concept or philosophy around the Hatch business. And then there's a whole lot of other things that go with it about culture interventions, culture change, and all things like that, community building. It's, it's all part of the process. And if anyone is listening to this and they would like to get more information? Yeah, so they can write to, to info at hatchinstitute.co.za. Hatchinstitute.co.za. Hatch, yeah, yeah, info at Awesome. Ian, thank you so much for your time. When it's a great you are um, tired, do you still go for massages? I haven't been for a massage for a long time, actually. That's it, the reason which, which you started this cool. thing. Yeah, that's, that's how I started. You know, they say that the, the shoemaker always walks barefoot, you know. And so, yeah, I, I do need to go back and have some more massages. Amazing. And so I think there are so many lessons from this. And the more uh, successful entrepreneurs I talk to, I think there's always, like what you say, there's a purpose behind what you're doing. Mm. Um, and I think in 2019, 2020, there's, there's so much more than just making money. Okay. Um, it's about the people. And yeah. it's almost the people that get that right are the people that's building amazing businesses. Yeah, so what we're trying to do really is we're trying to create a new breed of leader in, in business, uh, particularly in terms of trying to be able to operate in a changing socio-political environment. So those things are always connected. I never separate them. They're part of the process. So we're trying to get these people to be able to go out there, make a difference and lead their businesses despite all the challenges that they face in terms of the diversity of our population. Amazing. Ian, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the next time you're lying on a sorbet bed, now you know the guy behind the brand. And it's definitely not an ice cream brand. Thank you so much for thank your time. You, thanks, Wanda. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and that it's valuable in your own journey. Do connect with us and remember to join our mailing list at sme.africa forward slash podcast. And if you haven't subscribed to this show yet, do it now. And if you haven't rated it yet, what? You haven't rated it? Also do it now. My name is Marnes. See you again next week. Thanks for listening. If you're a business owner with cash sitting in a call, notice, fixed deposit or money market account, SMS the word cash to 47677 or visit investec.com forward slash SME Africa. Someone from our team will call you back and discuss how we can help you grow and maximize the return on your cash.